All right, opening your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, chapter number 10. Romans, chapter number 10. I appreciate those that are here today being here. I know there's some that are under the weather and not able to be here, and some, I'm sure, that are under the weather but pushed through and uh, came anyway, and I appreciate it. I appreciate you being in the house of God. Let me say that more than me appreciating it, I believe the Lord is pleased with us when we come to the house of God. So I hope that you've come with the right attitude this morning. Hope that you've come with your heart open to the truths of the Word of God. Romans chapter number 10 this morning. And I want to preach on a passage that I have never heard anyone preach on from a textual position or textually expositional. Now, I know those are some big words. But what I mean by that is to take this verse and actually dissect it and gain what we can learn from it. I've heard it preached and referenced uh, many, many times. In fact, most of the time when you hear a preacher preach on salvation, you will hear this verse referenced. Uh, But I don't know that I've ever heard any man just take it and uh, examine it in and of itself. And that's what I want to try to do this morning. And I want to try to be a help to you and an encouragement this morning. Uh, Let me just say that what the Pope says doesn't affect Walridge Baptist Church one inkling. Amen. We are an independent Baptist church. What the church down the street says doesn't affect us one bit. And that is the beauty of being an independent Baptist church is that no matter what anyone says or uh, what they yoke themselves up to or hitch their wagon to, it doesn't affect us. The Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice. We take it literally. Uh, We believe in a literal hell because the Bible teaches a literal hell. And uh, the Word of God will never change. And so I know I never have to question my position upon uh, a belief in a literal hell because the Word of God is never going to change. It's always going to teach that. And uh, so I know where we stand. Amen. And I hope you stand in the same place this morning. I believe if we stand with the Word of God, I believe we'll be doing all right, don't you? Romans chapter number 10. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Uh, The Bible says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Let me give you a a simple phrase of how you can remember that truth. You've got to take off the old coat before you can put on the new coat. Amen? You've got to quit trying to do it yourself before God can do it for you. And that's what is being taught here of Israel. They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. They won't submit themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, thank the Lord, for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Now this is our text this morning. Verse 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's read that again. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word in a particular way this morning. Speak to each heart. Lord, you know the hearts of those that are here. We do not. But God, we'd ask that you would just convict and encourage and exhort, Lord, in each and every heart that which is most needful. Lord, if there's any amongst us that do not know your Son as their Savior, I pray that this would be the day that they call on your Son, that they call upon the name of the Lord, that they be saved. Father, we just love you so much. We don't deserve a thing you've ever done for us, but Lord, you've been so good to us, and we just praise your holy name for it. Lord, meet with us this morning, and we'll give you the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now let me begin by saying that this verse, though it is settled in the Word of God, though it is a plain and explicit verse, though it means exactly what it says and says exactly what it means, don't think for one moment that everybody believes it. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, this whole notion of a whosoever gospel and a whosoever salvation, can I say that this is not a doctrine that is settled in the hearts and the minds of many denominations or churches in this day that we live in? I mean, I think it's evident. Like I told Brother Larry, it's probably a good thing I didn't know about it. It's all I would have preached on today. But it's, it's amazing how unsettled doctrinally that most Christians and most churches are. And there's a, a, a fear, an irrational fear of doctrine today in Christianity. And you say, well, why is that, preacher? Well, we want to float about in the air and flitter about, and we want to just get along with everybody. But doctrine demands that we believe some things. Doctrine denotes that we have some ideas and some principles and some teachings from the Word of God that ground us. They're black and white. They're right and wrong. They separate. They define who we are. And humanity does not like definitions. In fact, you'll find today in humanity that relativity is the notion by which uh, society operates. Everything's relative. It may be right for you, may be wrong for me, may be wrong for me, right for you, uh, vice versa, whatever it is, it goes. It doesn't matter what we believe, as long as we hold hands, as long as we get along. But the teachings of the Word of God are very explicit that there are some things that are right, there are some things that are wrong. Now, here's what we have to decide about this. Is the Word of God our authority or not? Now, if the Word of God is not your authority this morning, uh, then you're floating out in the sea of confusion. You have no baseline. You have no foundation. You might say, well, you know, preacher, I've got my own morals. Well, who decided your morals? Most people would have to admit, well, I decided my morals. Well, what makes you God? Most of us would admit that we have flaws and failures, that we don't know everything. And yet, when it comes to the great truths of life, we take it upon ourselves to play God and to decide and formulate and structure a framework for our doctrines for our beliefs. I don't believe that's wise, friend. I believe we're going to have to get back to the Word of God and what it teaches. Because there we have the inspired truth and revelation of God. There we have a foundation, a principle uh, based upon which we can live our lives. It's not settled in the church today. There's some that believe that nobody can be saved because salvation is just a delusion. Uh, There's a lot of Christians, uh, present company included, that have to argue with them. Christ has done too much for me for you to tell me that salvation is just a delusion. I mean, if it's just a delusional, you just just let me be delusional, amen? Because Christ has done too much for me. He's too real. I've spoken with Him, not uh, heard from Him audibly, but He's spoken to my heart. I've I've fellowshiped with Him. He's saved my soul. He's made a change in my life. You can't tell me that nobody can be saved because I am saved this morning. And there's some that believe everybody will be saved. This is the doctrine of universalism. 
And you'll find that many churches believe this idea of universalism, that one of these days everybody, whether they've rejected Christ or not, they're going to be saved. But the Bible teaches explicitly against this truth when it says that broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many there be that go therein. The fact is not everybody's going to heaven. There's going to be some people that are going to die and, and have rejected Christ. They're going to die and go to a literal place called hell, no matter whether anybody believes in it or doesn't believe in it. Don't change it. That's what the Bible teaches. For whosoever uh, believeth in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved, the Bible teaches. God sent His Son into this world that we could be saved, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That means if we don't believe on Him, then we will perish. The Bible teaches this explicitly. And then there is the notion or idea that there is a select or elect group of people who are going to be saved. They are predetermined and predestined to be saved, and they have no choice in the matter. They have no say about it. Some are going to go to hell whether they like it or not, whether they accept Christ or not. Some are going to go to heaven whether they accept Christ or not. Uh, This is the teaching of modern predestination. And by the way, the Bible talks about things being predestined, foreordained, but it never speaks of a person's soul salvation or their free will being something predestined never once. And so you say, well, preacher, nobody really believes that today. You'd be amazed, the big names of preachers that believe this. I mean, people that have ministries uh, ministering to uh, tens of thousands, uh, some of them even larger than that. And uh, I guess they hope that everyone in their group is elect. Amen. Something you'll find about people that believe this doctrine, all their kids are already elect. You'll find that to be so. You'll never find a person that believes in, in predestination as it relates to the free will of man that believes any of their kids are going to die and go to hell. You see, they always believe their kids are selected for salvation. It's always everybody else's kid. Uh, you know, you, you met those parents. They're, they was the ones who their kids never did anything wrong. You remember them? Uh, The fact is the Bible rejects this idea and it's framed in this little word. It's presented to us in this idea of a whosoever salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean to us today? What can we learn from that? What can that teach us? Let's read the verse once more in its entirety before we dig into it. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, this morning, we understand a few things about this. One of the things that we understand is that this is the Word of God. It's authoritative. This is not just a theory of mankind. This is not just a a consequence of philosophy. This is a direct revelation from God given to us in His inspired Word. We know it to be absolutely true, and so we know it has God's endorsement. God has made a promise that whosoever shall call upon Him, He's going to save them. He's going to forgive them. He's going to change their life. And I want you to notice four things this morning. I'm going to try to give them to you quick. I'm a little bit under the weather. And uh, if you all feel as bad as you look, you want to go home too. Amen. So uh, let, let's just look at four things this morning. I want to say that the first thing we have denoted here is the magnitude of the gospel. You see, that's really what we're discussing this morning is the gospel. You say, what is the gospel? The gospel is the truth and the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of a virgin, died, rose the third day in power and in glory. He, was de- he died, was buried, and He rose again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the gospel. 
This truth, this, I don't want to use the word story because it's not a story in the sense of a fairy tale, but the fact that this happened, the fact that we know this truth, this is the gospel. What is salvation? Salvation is the response of God to our believing the gospel and accepting the gospel. Uh, the gospel is what we must put our faith in. The, the Lord of glory that rose from the grave, we must take Him at His word, trust His finished work on Calvary to be our salvation, to pay for our sins. And in response to that, God promised He would save us. And so here in this verse, we have presented to us who can be saved. The magnitude. Who does this gospel encompass? Who is it relevant to? I would say to you this morning that the gospel is relevant to every man. That's what whosoever means. It means any and everybody. I mean, I think sometimes we try to Hebrew and Greek away our King James Bible. And I think we need to be careful about doing that. I'm not against uh, running references. I'm not against studying. Uh, I'm not against learning some definitions. But we need to be careful uh, lest we let Mr. Strong take away our King James Bible. And it's easy to do that. The word whosoever means exactly just that. It means anybody. And so that implies me. That implies you. That implies anybody that you would meet. Now again, let me remind you. We're talking about the authoritative Word of God. Because it's within the nature of of humankind to look at that and say, No, not me. No, not me. It's not talking about me. We always like to point towards others. But if we believe this is the Word of God, then we believe it's talking about you and it's talking about me. Let me say this is a comprehensive word. It means everybody. It means of any financial bracket, of any race, of any gender. I'm thankful that the Bible teaches that Christ tasted death for every man. Not just a few, not just a select few. I mean, if we're going to take the position that some are predestined to go to hell despite their free will choice to accept Christ, if we believe that they are predestined, then to do so, we must throw out this idea of whosoever. God would simply be making a bluff to humanity. And I don't believe God bluffs anybody. I believe when God makes you a promise, I think He means that promise, don't you? I think he means business about it. Let me give you an example, and I'll try not to be lengthy in this. I've referenced it a couple times here over the past few weeks. But I had a question this morning in Sunday school class. Someone asked me about the ministry of John the Baptist. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the paths of the Lord, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And we were talking about the ministry of John as a voice. And that's what a prophet was. He was the voice of God to a generation. Why did God send John? Stop thinking about this for a moment. Why did God send John? I would propose this to you. Do you know that all through the Old Testament, a Messiah is promised to Israel? All through the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament ideal or doctrine. In the New Testament, we have the fulfillment of it and the coming of Jesus Christ. But all through the Old Testament, uh, the Messiah is promised. God made a promise to Israel. I'm sending you a Messiah. You can receive Him or you can reject Him, but I'm sending you a Messiah. Let me ask you something. Did God already know whether they were going to accept or reject Christ? Of course He did. But let me tell you how serious God is about keeping His Word. God made a promise at the end of the book of Malachi, at the close of the Old Testament, that before the Lord would come back, Elijah would come. And to this day, when Jews have Passover, they'll set a place for Elijah. They'll leave the door open for Elijah. They're waiting for Elijah to come because of this Old Testament promise. Listen to what Christ said about John the Baptist. said that if you will hear him, he is that Elijah. 
You say, what is the significance of what you're telling me, preacher? God was so serious about the promise He made of the Jews accepting the Messiah. Even though God knew who would, knew who wouldn't, God understood that, uh, that the nation of Israel would reject His Son. He concocted things or constructed things in such a way that if the Jews had chose to accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah, He could have set up a millennial kingdom right there. He made a provision for that. Now you say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying God doesn't bluff people. If He makes a promise, He means it. He makes a way, and He's made a way for each and every person. It doesn't matter. I'm thankful that the gospel of the Word of God is a gospel that is fit to each and every person. I'm thankful that it doesn't matter who you are, the Word of God is still true. And I'm thankful that it doesn't matter who you meet, the gospel of Jesus Christ can still save them. I'm thankful for that this morning. I'm thankful we don't have to have one gospel for this race, another for that race, another for this race. I'm thankful we don't have to have a gospel for this gender or to that gender, for those that don't know what gender they are. God help us this morning. I'm thankful that the gospel is true no matter who it is. It's a comprehensive word. But I would say it's not only a comprehensive word, but if you stop and think about it, it's a convicting word. Because if any and all can be saved, could I say that any and all need to be saved? If it's a whosoever salvation, then any and all need to be saved. And you might say, well, now, preacher, that's a little bit of stretch. Uh, what does the Word of God teach? Well, the Word of God teaches that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that there's none righteous, no, not one. Now, again, if you're going to reject what the Word of God says, there's no hope, no help for you. But if you'll believe what God says about it this morning, then you have to admit that each and every one of us are born sinners in this world. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your station in life, whether it be high, whether it be low. It doesn't matter your bank account, whether it be big, whether it be small. As If you've drawn a breath into this world, you were born a sinner. The Bible says uh, that uh, death passed upon all men through Adam. The Bible says, for as by one man sin entered into the world. Some of you ladies ought to say amen right there. It doesn't say by one woman. It says by one man. Some of you all ought to look at your husbands and slap them. Amen. <laughs> Blame them. Say it's your fault. Uh, for as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, in that all of sin. The Bible says that in sin did my mother conceive me. I was shapen in iniquity. Now when David wrote this, he's not saying that he was born of some illicit relationship between his parents. He's saying that when I was born, I was born a sinner. We don't have to be taught to do wrong. We know how to do wrong. It's instinctual and intrinsic within human nature to buck against and to go against and to disobey and to rebel. We don't have to try to rebel. We just have to yield to rebellion. Why is that? Because we're born sinners, each and every one of us. Isn't it interesting that no matter where you go, there's always sin? Stop and think about that for just a moment. Think about what I just said. Anywhere you go in this world, you're going to find sin. doesn't matter if you go to the richest communities in this world. You're going to find sin there. doesn't matter if you go to the middle of the jungle with people that have never seen another human soul outside of those that are within their tribe. You're going to find sin there. I was watching the other day a documentary on the Alka Indians and, the, uh, and Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the missionaries that went to try to reach them back in the 40s and 50s. And, uh, you know, most of you probably have heard, if you've not, the story about these young men that went and tried to reach them and this tribe slaughtered all of them. And later on, the wives of these men went back and reached these uh, Alka Indians. And today there's a work being done there and a church there. Uh, but whenever I was listening to the description of these Alka Indians, and by the way, this was a tribe that no one even knew existed until maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago. And when they were describing the way in which they lived, they described it as violence and murder. They would talk about killing people for senseless, I mean, just no reasons whatsoever. And it was just a, it was a culture of killing. 
doesn't matter where you go. You're going to find sin. There's some that would have us to believe that religion is the source of violence today. And I, you hear this argument a lot that, well, all the violence that's done in the name of religion. Hey, you look around society, you'll find out people don't need a religion to commit violence. There's lots of people who do it for whatever reason they want to do it for. Everywhere you go, you're going to find sin. Do you know why that is? Because everywhere you go, you're going to find sinners. Because every man born in this world is born a sinner. That means you. That means me. You say, preacher, what gives you the right to stand behind a pulpit and to preach these things as if you're not? It's because I am, but I'm saved by God's grace. Nothing in and of myself. Nothing. I'm the worst of the worst. But Christ, through His grace, was willing to save me just as He's willing to save you or your family members, your neighbors, your friends. It's a whosoever gospel. But I would say this is not only a comprehensive word and a convicting word. I would say that it is a condemning word. You say, now wait a minute, preacher. That's, uh, th- this verse has some of the greatest news that you could ever hope for. And I would agree with you. That's what the word gospel actually means is good news. And the gospel is good news. And I'm thankful for the gospel. What is condemning about this verse? What well, tells me this? It tells me that if any and all can be saved, and if any and all need to be saved, that any and all that reject Christ have no excuse for their rejecting Him. You see, if it cost a certain amount of money for us to be redeemed, there'd be some who could call foul on God. If it took a certain amount of uh, moral rectitude or righteousness, there would be some that could say, well, Lord, you didn't understand my background. You don't know what I've been through. You don't understand me. Uh, But the Bible teaches that none of these things are relevant to our redemption. All that is needed is for us to call upon the name of the Lord. And that means this. There's not a single person that dies and goes to hell. Listen carefully what I say. There's not a single person that dies and goes to hell against their will. They've chosen to do it. You may say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher, that's, that's harsh. No, that's the truth. That's the truth. You say, preacher, there's some that do not know. Well, there may be some that don't know as much as me and you, but you can look towards heaven and see there's a creator God. The fact is, people don't go to hell because they choose to, not because they have to. You'll hear people often say, well, you know, how could you believe in a loving God or a God that is loving that would send people to hell? And I usually say, well, I don't. I don't. I believe in a God that did everything He could to keep men out of hell. I believe in a God that sent His Son to die on a rugged cross that bankrupted the glories of heaven and sent His Son to be born of a virgin and laid in a manger and to be despised and hated and rejected of all men and to be laid upon a cross and have nails pierce His hands and feet and a crown of thorns upon His head. I believe in a God that loved this world enough to send His Son to die for our sins. But I also believe in a God that respects a man's wishes and is free will enough to give him the choice. I believe in a God that doesn't want robots, but wants saints and worshipers. And so because of this, He gives man the option. And it is our option. It is our choice. There's a few things you'll never make people do. You'll never make people love. You'll never make them hate. You'll never make them uh, accept Christ as their Savior. These things they must do of their own choice, of their own volition. These are our decisions in the matter. And so if we reject Christ, it's because we've chosen to. If we die and go to hell, it's because we've chosen to. Because God's made a provision and God's made a way. We see the magnitude of the gospel. But how are we saved? Now again, you've got three separate ideas here. You've got salvation, which is what God does. You've got the gospel, which is what we must respond to. But then you have the mode of the gospel or or the the response that we must have. How do we access this gospel? How do we gain salvation? Or how do we uh, inherit salvation? How does this take place? How do we gain access to the salvation of God? What is the mode of this gospel? Well, two little words are used here. Shall call. That's interesting to me. Shall call upon the name of the Lord. 
It's fascinating to me as you study world religions to see all the means through which various world religions uh, have, have come up with to try to please God and appease Him. And some involve harming yourself and your body. Some involve harming others and taking other lives. Some involve uh, sacrificing animals. Some involve giving money or helping others. But what is the means that God has chosen for a person to be saved? Well, I would notice a few things about this. First off, I would notice that God has chosen a feasible mode of salvation. Shall call. Now, what does it mean to call? We could define it as a lot of different ways. Uh, we're going to see here in a moment that there are some things that are implied in here. But to call means to call unto, same way that you call on anybody. I mean, if you call on someone, you're going to try to get their attention. You're going to try to employ their vision. You're going to uh, try to get a hold of them, and you're going to try to make a request known. When you call someone, or at least when I call someone, I've usually got a reason for it. Amen. Uh, there's other people, I'm sure, that aren't that way. They call just to, to call and just to talk. But usually, if I call you, I've usually got a reason. I've got something I'm going to ask of you or something that I'm going to tell you. I'm trying to get a hold of you for a reason. The Bible says that this is the means of salvation. Well, this is a feasible means for any and everybody. It doesn't require any money. It doesn't require any social standing. Anybody can call upon the name of the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful truth? God's not given us any hoops to jump through. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ has paid the price. He has made a way. And all we must now do is receive what He has done through calling upon Him. It's easy. It's a feasible thing. And some people say, well, now, preacher, that's easy believism. And let me give it to you as I heard a preacher say it one time. I, I believe that salvation is easy. I believe that once you realize that you're a lost sinner and on your way to hell, and I believe that once you get to the place where you do anything to be saved, I, I kind of think that, that you'll find out that all you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. Let me tell you what keeps most people from getting saved. It's their will. It's their pride. See, for us to be saved, we first got to admit that we need to be saved. We don't want to do that. For us to be saved, we first got to admit wrong with us. And we don't like to admit that. Nobody likes to admit that. In fact, we spend our entire lives trying to conform, uh, most of us do, to other people, trying to uh, blend in, trying to prove that we're just like everyone else, that there's nothing wrong. But the Bible teaches for us ever to be saved, we've got to acknowledge that there's something wrong in our life, that we need salvation. It's a feasible mode, though, once you do that. You won't call upon someone unless you believe they're there. You won't call upon someone anyways unless I need something from them. You've got to acknowledge your need before you'll ever call upon the name of the Lord. It's a feasible mode, but I'd say too it's a free mode. It's a free mode. It's not going to cost you anything to be saved. It's not going to cost you anything to be saved. It'll cost you everything to live like a saved person. But it won't cost you anything to be saved. You know why? Because you don't have anything in the first place. You say, oh, now, preacher, that's, that's rude. I mean, that's to say that. No, that's the truth this morning. What do we have that's of any value or of any worth? You say, well, preacher, you've not seen my bank account. It ain't nothing but numbers on a computer screen. Isn't that right? I mean, listen to me this morning. I know everybody's falling asleep. I get that, but listen carefully. It ain't nothing but numbers on a computer screen. You say, no, preacher, I can, go, I can go to the bank and I can pull that money out. Oh, so you've got a bunch of green paper. That's a promise from the government. And the government keeps all its promises, Right? You don't have anything. It's going to burn up one of these days. Preacher, you ain't seen my house, my big, beautiful house. It ain't nothing but wood and brick and mortar, and it'll burn up one of these days. Burn up one of these days. You say, Preacher, you don't know the kind of family I've got. I know this, unless they know the Lord and you know the Lord, you'll be separated from them eternally. You see, anything of value that you could ever have is, is invested in the person of Jesus Christ. 
There's nothing that you have. And it's amazing how we will cling to the rotten rags of our righteousness to the point that we're willing to die and go to hell because we don't want to admit that we're bankrupt, that we have nothing that could appease God. It's a free mode, but I'd say thirdly, it's a faith mode. It's a faith mode. I, I, I touched on this a moment ago. If you call someone, you're believing that they're there. And I know that today, and, and this is becoming more and more irrelevant, you ever notice how dependent we all are on cell phones today? We all are. Uh, today, if you call someone, if you don't get a hold of them in a couple tries, you're, you're calling the police down there to put their face on a milk carton. How many of you remember just a few years ago when a person left the house and you didn't expect to hear from them until 5, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, whenever they rolled through the door? You remember that? Sure. We've become acclimated to that because when we call someone, we expect them to be there. We expect to hear from them. We're trusting that they are there, but not only are we trusting they're there, we're trusting they're going to answer. Not only are we trusting they're going to answer, listen carefully, we're trusting they're going to be able to meet whatever need we have called them for. Those are the three things that we put our faith in when we call upon Jesus Christ. We trust that He's there. We trust that He's there. There's a lot of people who won't ever be saved because they don't want to believe that Jesus Christ is alive today. And let me say this, the, the key difference between a real profession and a false profession, the, the, the difference between a profession and a possession is what you have put your faith in. L- listen carefully to what I'm about to say. There's a lot of people think they're saved and they're not saved because they have put their faith in a historical event rather than in a living Savior. There's a lot of people that have an academic acknowledgement of the gospel. I mean, they, they believe that, the, the, that Christ lived and that he died and was buried and rose again the third day. I mean, they believe that. But when they got saved, they were just acknowledging that they accept that truth. They weren't calling upon a living Savior to forgive them and save them. That's the difference this morning. When you get saved, you're not accepting a story. You're accepting a person. When you get saved, you're not accepting a, a, a grouping of principles. You're accepting a person. You're calling upon Him and you're giving Him the government of your life. You say, that's Lordship Salvation Preacher. No, He's just Lord. I've, I've never seen a person get saved on bargaining terms with God. Have you? Every person I've ever seen get saved, they, they came to God and they just knew they needed to be saved. They didn't come to bargain with Him. They came to be born again. And you call upon Him. You're expecting Him to be there. And you're believing He's going to answer. You're trusting that He will do what He said He was going to do. You're believing He's there. There's an ear that you're speaking to. There's a throne you're, you're approaching. You're believing that He's there. But not only are you doing that, you're believing He can meet your needs. This is where the story or the narrative of the gospel comes in. You believe that what He did on Calvary is sufficient to pay for your sins. You're believing He can meet that need, that He can save you. He's promised that He will save you. This is all of faith and not of works. None of it is done through earning anything or attaining to anything. All of it is done through the, uh, through the desire to quit trying to attain to it yourself and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to do for you what you can't do for yourself. We see the mode of this gospel. We see the manifestation of this gospel. Shall call upon what? Upon the name of the Lord. 
Well, what does that mean? We've talked a lot about the names of God lately, Brother Ralph. Uh, it's been the Christmas season, and we've talked about a threefold Christmas title. For unto us is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. We've talked about the, the actual name of Jesus Christ. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. We've talked about the sevenfold Christmas prophecy in Isaiah chapter number 9, uh, when it says that His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We've talked about the names of God lately. But really what... What does it boil down to? A name is about identity. A name means nothing unless there is a personality connected to it. I mean, I can throw a name out there. I mean, I can throw the name John out there to you. And I can say, uh, do you know John? And your mind is going to go to a John that you know. Maybe the same one, it may be a different one, but you're going to think of somebody named John that you know, and you're gonna, your mind is going to run to that. Why? Because a name has no power unless there's an identity with it. So when we speak of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think there's three things that are implied there. First off is the incarnation. If we speak of Him as the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that we know of, we're acknowledging that God was manifest in the flesh, that He was God, that He was the Son of God. He was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, that He came to this world to die for your sins and for my sins. We're acknowledging that, that He existed, that He lived. But then, too, I believe we're acknowledging the crucifixion, else why would we be calling on Him? We're acknowledging that He died for our sins, uh, that He impunitively bore our punishment for you and for I, that He was the vicarious and substitutionary sacrifice, that He took your sins and my sins upon Him as He walked up Calvary and that He bore Him upon the rugged tree. That's what we're believing. We're believing He died for our sins, but we're also believing in the resurrection because we're believing that He is alive today to hear and answer our prayers. We're believing that he is, he is alive today, seated at the right hand of the God, ever liveth to make intercession for us. That's the manifestation of the gospel. Christ is the manifestation of the gospel. His life and His ministry on this earth, His death on the cross, His resurrection out of the tomb, His ascension to heaven, His ministry today of intercession. This is the gospel that Christ came to this world for you and I. That's what we are believing when we uh, believe what He did for us. That He's capable this morning. There's a lot of people that are never going to be saved because they flat out don't believe God's capable of saving. They just don't believe He can do it. You find this problem over and over and over again in the Gospels when Christ would talk to men and women uh, and He would uh, tell them that their sins were forgiven. There would always be someone in the crowd that would say, Who is this man that forgiveth sins? Only God can forgive sins. I'd say I agree with that. And that's why God sent His Son, who was God in the flesh, to this world. He has the capability to forgive us of our sins, to save our loved ones, to save us. I would say we see the manifestation of this gospel. I want to give you one thing and I'm, I'm done. I would say that we see the miracle of this gospel. Shall be saved. Now that's a promise from God. This is not wishful thinking. This is not a hope kind of thing. This is a for sure kind of thing because God said it. We put our faith in God that He is going to keep His Word. And He promised He would do so. What does saved mean? That word saved has just become as common as you can find. I mean, we, people use the terminology saved all the time. And one sure way uh, to kill a conversation if you're trying to witness to someone is to ask them if they're saved. Because everybody knows the right answer to that. Amen. You've got to ask them weird stuff. <laughs> got to ask them strange stuff. You've been grafted or so, you know, because we, we know that language today. 
And, and, and society is just saturated with, with the term salvation. You hear it all the time in, in society. Same way as the, the terminology faith. Everybody you meet is a person of faith. Well, that doesn't mean anything. We're all creatures of faith. When we get in our car and start it, we're having faith, or some of us are anyways, having faith that it's going to start. I mean, when we roll out of bed, we're having faith that there's a floor underneath us. Of course we're all people of faith. The question is, what are you putting your faith in? And salvation is the same way. Everybody talks of salvation, salvation, salvation. But what does salvation mean? I would give you three things. I could give you 3,000. Let me say, first off, it means to be forgiven. Forgiven. You see, we owe a sin debt to God. And again, if you, if you, don't, if you don't grasp that, uh, if you choose not to grasp that, then, then you'll never be saved. You've got to acknowledge that you owe a debt to God. You've got to acknowledge that you're not on bargaining ground. You've got to acknowledge that He has something that you need, and He's willing to give it, but you can't earn it, and you can be forgiven of your sins. The sinner must first off recognize that he needs to be forgiven, that he's offended a holy God. You say, I didn't ever do nothing to offend him. Sure you did. You do things every day, just as I do things every day. I mean, we could go down the line. Have you ever told a lie? Let me ask you this this morning. Have you ever told a lie? Anybody? Anybody? Well, we got a bunch of them in here right now, don't we? Amen. I've told a lie. Have you? How many you told? How many does it take to be a liar? It just takes one. We're all liars. We've all offended God. You ever hated anyone? I ain't going to ask you to raise your hand right now because they might be in the same room with you. I don't know. You ever had feelings of hatred? Sure, you probably have. I have. I hate to admit that, but I have. I was wrong when I felt that way. But I felt that way before in my life. The Bible says that if we hate someone, that it's the equivalency of murder in our hearts. So we're murderers. And on and on we could go down the line of things that we've done. Sure, we've offended God. And that must be rectified. Something must be done about that if we're to have fellowship with God. Well, that was done at Calvary. And we can be forgiven of our sins. And we need to be forgiven of our sins. The Bible teaches that salvation is forgiveness. But I would say, number two, that salvation is fulfillment. Fulfillment. Salvation is the fulfilling of that which is missing in the human experience and in the human life. We are missing something. If you don't believe me, just, just go out and look at society sometime and you'll, feel, you'll, you'll see seven billion people scrambling to fill that void. Filling it with all sorts of pills and bottles and relationships and, and just any and everything that they can, they can try to pour into their life to fill this void. Can I say that Christ fills that void? He said to the woman at the well, and this was a woman that had been through a lot, and still she retained her pride. Stop and think about that. She had been through a lot, but still she retained her pride. Because when Christ looked at her and said, who's your husband? And she said, I ain't got a husband. She said, uh, who, who's your husband? And uh, she said, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not living with anybody right now. I've not got anyone right now. I mean, I, I've, and Christ said, yeah, you've been married five times. The, woman, the man you're with now isn't even your husband. She still tried to cover it up, still tried to uh, keep face and keep appearance about things. But Christ looked at her, and there they were beside the well of, of Jacob, and they were drawing, and he began to draw an analogy with this water that she was seeking so much for. And he said that this water, you drink of it, and you're going to be thirsty again. It won't be very long. He said, but if you'll drink of the water that I shall give thee, it shall be in thee a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He said, you drink of what I give you, you're never going to thirst again. Could I say there is a fulfillment that salvation brings to the soul of the sinner? That cannot be matched, cannot be equaled, cannot be replaced, cannot be substituted. 
It is a peace which passeth all understanding. It is a fulfillment that goes beyond anything this world could ever offer. And it's amazing that people would grasp to their water pots when the well of salvation is just right in front of them. It's amazing to me that people would long so much for this one little bit of seeming satisfaction when Christ offers it all to you. Salvation means fulfillment, but I give you one final thing. Salvation means to be faithfully kept. I'm thankful that salvation is not in my hands. I wouldn't have it very long. I didn't earn it. I can't lose it. There's nothing I did to earn it. In fact, when I got it, it was because I quit trying to earn it. And I acknowledged my need of the Savior. The Bible teaches that we are kept under the day of salvation. God is keeping us. He has saved us. He has paid the price. He has redeemed us. We are in His hands. And people say, well, you know, what if I won't get out of His hands? Well, that's silly. The Bible says that He has measured the span of the universe in the span of His hand. That's a pretty big hand. You're going to have to get started. What I'm saying is the magnitude of God is so large that there's nothing that could separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Neither height nor depth. Nothing. Nothing above, nothing beneath, nothing in this world, nothing out of this world. Salvation means to be fully and faithfully saved by Jesus Christ from our sins. In other words, it can be settled today. Today. I don't know the hearts of anybody in this room. I'm thankful I don't. It'd terrify me. And it'd probably terrify you to know my heart. Amen. In fact, some would say, well, you know, you may not know my heart, but I know my heart. And I'd say, no, you don't. Because the Bible teaches that the, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So if you believe the Word of God, then you have to believe that, that you don't really know your heart, but that God does. And that God's assessment of your heart's condition is correct. And if we believe that this morning, there may be someone here that's never accepted Christ. You may have a profession, but you have no possession. I mean, you may have, have said a prayer, but you've never met the Savior. Your life has never been changed. You may be in a church, but your life's not been changed. Can I say to you that, that salvation means more than that? Salvation means more than church membership. Now, I believe in church membership. Salvation is more than just church membership. You've heard it a thousand times, but I believe there's something apt about it, that, that I can walk into a garage and that doesn't make me a car. And just because you come in a church house doesn't make you a Christian. But let me tell you something. The Son of God is willing to save and redeem and forgive you and have you born into the family of God. He's willing to do that. The question is, are you willing to let Him? If you are this morning, there's nothing keeping you from salvation. Price is paid. The way is made. The mode is available to you. But it's your choice. It's your choice. Some of you have loved ones. You've been praying for them. You're concerned about them. Take these truths that I've given you and share them with them. I don't mean in an ugly way. But share with them that Christ died for all, including them. That they can be saved. What better way to close out 2013 than there being another, another child of God? born into his family. What, what better way? What better way to close out 2013 than for any of your loved ones to come know the Savior? What better way? I can think of no better way. 